Over 25 candidates are running for the National Political Committee at the DSA convention next week. We'll hear from some of the candidates. Our panel of union organizers will try to break down the differences. And Jonathan and I stumble our way through 20th century history looking for parallels to DSA. You're listening to the Smash Up Derby. But we thought we would talk a little bit about what happens when an organization grows, like literally quintuples and quintuples. No, that's not that's not the right. That's, quintuples would be five times. Five times. So let's say it quintupled over like three years. Right. Right, and it, it's grown probably the biggest gro- spurt uh, spurt of growth came after the Trump election. But, right, I think uh, it like tripled after the Trump. It election. tripled after the Trump election. It probably had grown by about fifty uh, percent during the Bernie campaign, and right. then it tripled. And so there's math there, but we're not going to do the math. We're not going to do Jonathan and I thought we would talk a little bit about organizations that grow very fast. Right. And Because you know, as labor organizers, we are really familiar with that. With, that's right. Well, as labor <laughs> organizers, we've rarely experienced that. But um, um, So we thought of a couple of historical examples so we, we were thinking about the so the Students for a Democratic Society from the 60s and uh, the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the 30s. Um, so Jonathan, explain why the CIO comes to mind. So the CIO um, was the organization of unions that really organized basic industry in the U.S., the auto workers, the steel workers, the electrical workers. They sort of established the mid-century idea that, you know, factory workers would have had, they had unions, they were strong, they were able to sort of bring, you know, sort of blue-collar jobs into the middle class. And, and, then and these were all sort of un, sort of unskilled jobs, right? Because the AFL right. wouldn't organize them. Right. And so, it, uh, you know, if you were working in uh, a steel mill or an auto plant uh, before, uh, the, before the 30s, before the CIO organized basic industry, if, you know, maybe if you were like a skilled worker, an electrician, you might be in the electrician's union. Right. Yeah. And if you were a machinist, you might be in the machinist union and you may or may not be able to get, uh, you know, Ford to recognize in the case of Ford, you were not able to get Ford to recognize your union. And, you know, but the but the majority of the workers were, you know, working on machines and so forth. And and it, the reason why the CIO is called the Congress of Industrial Organizations was actually not even so much that they organized people who worked with machines, but because they stood for the idea of industrial unionism, that everyone in an industry should be in the same union. And this was really like the animating idea of the 1930s, and was, how fast? Did, how fast would you say that those those unions grew? I mean, they went from I, like, from I mean zero to millions. Yeah, in like in, in three years or something like that. Yeah, there was a real uh, you know sort of uh, back and forth between popular mobilization. There were uh, you know, the CIO was officially founded in 1936, but in 1934 there were huge strikes. Um, in across the South, and in uh, there was a general strike in San Francisco, and essentially a general strike in Minneapolis that helped really establish the Teamsters Union. And so there was sort of both a wave of popular mobilization and demand for industrial unionism, uh, and then also the Roosevelt administration and the and the and the Democrats in Congress, um, who had been really elected in 1932 to solve the 
the financial crisis, right, of the Great Depression, they they saw this uh, that passing labor legislation was both a way to channel that popular militance into something that could be controlled by the government, but also uh, but also really um, that if workers were able to negotiate on an industrial basis, that that would uh, uh, that would create some stability in the economy. Right. And so, I mean, one way to think of this is that all across the country, all of a sudden, you could vote to have a union. You used to not be able to vote. The, the way you would get right. a union before this is you'd go on strike and you'd force the employer to recognize the union. And that was literally the only way to do it. So, so once the, the National Labor Relations Act, though, was found to be constitutional, basically every factory in the country could have an election and vote in a union. Right. And that basically just happened in thousands of factories all across the country, almost yeah. immediately. Right. I mean, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's in 1930, there's this, you know, uh, report by, by a, an organizer for the UE, the union that I'm in, um, that uh, where, you know, he was uh, organizing uh, electrical manufacturing workers in southern New England. And in his report to the national office, he says, oh, by the way, can you let Walter Ruther at the UAW know that these two groups of auto workers, like I ran into them, they wanted to know how to organize. I told them how to organize. They have now established UAW locals. Yeah. And he should send them He should send them a letter. <laughs> yeah, so that's awesome for, you know, for, for those of us who, are, who have organized in recent years, you know, typically organizing a, a one factory takes many years of, uh, of organizational work and legal work and all of this stuff. And the idea that they're just basically organizing themselves is amazing. What's our, you know, we talked a little bit about this comparison for with the Democratic Socialist America, which, you know, look, Democratic Socialist America, very small organization, really. Right, right. Com- in comparison. But what, what, are the, what are the comparisons here? Well, you know, because I think, um, I mean, obviously there are like huge differences in terms of how the economy is organized, right? And, and, and um, people aren't working in, in huge factories together anymore where they can stop production. But, you know, one of the things that really the sort of the ferment that helped uh, this this process was that a lot of the people who were organizing these CIO unions were were younger workers who were reading socialist and communist newspapers, you know, who were sort of like who who were living through a, an ongoing crisis of capitalism that we now call the Great Depression, and uh, you know, it's, you know, essentially like 1929 was their 2008, mm-hmm. and they had. They were facing the prospect of sort of worse economic possibilities than their parents. Um, there was a there was a huge decline in uh, uh, rates of marriage and, and having children um, during this time, and and many and so there are really a lot of generational parallels uh, between the generation of of younger workers who were really involved in organizing the CIO unions in the 30s and uh, millennials today. Which is anecdotally, my impression is a lot of the growth of the DSA's membership. It's laying the groundwork. Who knows what happens and where it goes? Right, right. But you're seeing this uh, this generation getting activated. So the generation that organized the CIO, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, they were young, right? The, the yeah. organizers for the CIO. We think Walter Ruther. How old do you think Walter Ruther was when the so CIO he, was organized? Do, so do you know? he was. Yeah, so he was, I believe, born in 1907. So he was 29 
right when the when or 28 when the UAW was founded and 29 when the CIO CIO was founded. So yeah, I mean James Matlas, who was the uh, Secretary Treasurer of the UE, was born in 1909. So you know he would have been uh, 27 when the CIO was founded. Yeah, these were the, these were like young guys. Yeah, the, and the assumption is that. You know, everybody else that was doing the organizing would have been about the same age, more or less. I mean, of course, there was a, a wide variety. But the fact that you could become, you know, secretary treasurer of the the Electrical Workers Union, which would have had hundreds of thousands of members uh, very quickly and be 29 right. years old. I mean, the CIO is interesting because maybe there's a, a CIO on our horizon. Maybe we're laying the foundation. Right. For That's sort of, sort of what we're hoping. That's what we're hoping. Uh, but it's worth it's worth calling out. Now I want to bring up the Students for a Democratic Society. It you know it's also not an exact an exact parallel, but it's also it's an organization from the '60s that grew very quickly, exclusively really on college campuses. I don't. I was looking around to see if I could see what membership numbers for it were, and I could not find that. Um, years ago, I read the. Uh, Kirkpatrick Sale book. I think that's that was the author. Uh, he right, has a right. Huge book called SDS on the history. I'm sure that the information is in there, but I haven't read it in 25 years. So, but anyway, it had hundreds of thousands of members, if not a million members, um, on college campuses, and it was largely based on its opposition to the Vietnam War and, and largely the draft. But that organization was, you know, unlike a union, it was a little more amorphous. It was really an activist organization. Uh, with local chapters, and that way it looks a lot more like SDS. Uh, SDS, right. sorry, it looks more like DSA, right? Because right, it's right. really an, an association of local chapters into a national organization. And of course, what happened to SDS is really a cautionary tale. And essentially, what happened was it factionalized. Uh, it went on. There were several different kinds of caucuses developed. All of who, which were sort of radical left and Leninist sort of organizations, either came into it and tried to take over or evolved out of it. As a result, and none of these organizations, and this is one thing about this brand of socialist organization that's often called Leninist in the United States, and they call themselves Leninist, is that it becomes very inflexible ideologically and therefore, oftentimes ends up they they end up in a situation where they can't work together because they think that they've got a you know sort of clear understanding of the truth and of all history and you know therefore they need to press on alone in their own organization. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well, but yeah, and I think you know I think the other real difference between you know young people who were involved in SDS and young people who were involved in the CIO is that in the CIO is that they were, you know you were sort of rooted in an actual workplace and an actual community and you even though like many of the unions were led by younger workers there were also older workers in the plant right and right. and there was a, a you know I think a certain and and even sort of for the younger more radical workers there were also younger workers who weren't so radical you know who you had to like sort of like bring along and and uh, right and, and be part of your of your organization um and you know an sds didn't really have that uh that structural need in other words in a union you've got to represent everybody right in an american right. union you have to represent everybody and that 
tends to make the leadership more cautious about just articulating politics because it's their politics, right? In other words, you're representing people now. It's not just you you represent. You're representing everybody on the factory floor. And all those people's livelihoods depends on you doing a good job at it. Right. right. So it's right. a whole different situation that is really not comparable to the DSA or the SDS. And I think what's, what is comparable to the SDS and DSA is just they, they don't have that situation. Right. 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 These are people who are really just political people who represent themselves for the most part. You know, I guess at the convention they'll represent their local. But, you know, for the most part, they are moving their own political platform forward and that is, you know, that can be, there's peril there. Right. Right. There, there be dragons. <laughs> right. <laughs> the dragons of Marxist-Leninism. Exactly. Ah. And so what you I, see... I can say that because I am a Marxist-Leninist, but so go ahead. This is the other thing that's different, though, about DSA and SDS, is that there are old people in DSA, <laughs> right. We're not the majority. We're right. not even There are up. even people who are older than us. That's right. Right. And so, you know, but there is a contingent of people who are over 40. But I do think that SDS provides a kind of cautionary tale. It's worth reading more about SDS and understanding what happened there if, you know, you you, you take these things seriously. Right. right. All right. Well, so the other the, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of Organizations that grow fast is yes, yes. <clears throat> I couldn't resist getting online and um, looking at a bunch of business journals and talking about what happens when your startup grows too fast. Right, right, right. Our, our next our next episode, we're actually going to have Mark Zuckerberg on as our guest. That's right, talking about <laughs> DSA <clears throat> post <laughs> post convention. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about value and capturing value. And, right. Um, you know, and valorization, is that a thing? No. Valorization. It's- Fast Money has an article on what to watch out for when your company grows too fast. And there's three things that they, um, that they point out. Um, and I chose Fast Company because, um, because their list is only three long versus right. all the other ones, which are like 20 long. So, but I, I think there might be some interesting things here. So, number one is failing to distinguish types of customers. <laughs> this is like the number one thing that uh, you know you should be worried about in your startup. And actually, there's something there, right? It, there's something about thinking about who are, are the recruits for DSA and why are they joining, right? And really understanding that in a very clear way. Uh, so that that seems to me that that's kind of insightful. That it's important to understand who they're, who's joining and why they're joining, because the right, people right. the people who are joining are probably different than the people at the convention, right? I mean, they, right. they're not they're not right. those people yet, at least, um, and they're joining for probably different reasons that the most active people um, joined. So, I think I thought that was interesting. That number two, which is part of everybody's list of what why fast-growing companies fail is they hire the wrong people. So in other words, you're growing really fast <laughs> and you want to yeah, just yeah, hire yeah. people uh, like mad and they're the wrong people and it, it sinks you. Although they, you know, they, I'm sure that they will with expanded resources be hiring new people and they have been hiring right, new people. Right, right. Um, well, and I mean, I think that is, that is one of the things that, you know, that one would hope that uh, d- democratic organizations have, uh, have a certain advantage of 
um, in terms of like a, just a vetting process? Because really, you're talking about like who's in your leadership. Well, I think and, it's, it can be both, right? It's it's either electing people, right, or or it's actually literally hiring people. But um, but I suppose you could see it but, either way, right? Right. I mean, because in in DSA, like the I mean, realistically, the number of people that are going to be able to hire is still going to be just like a tiny fraction of their membership. Right. Whereas, you know, in a company, like who you hire really, really makes all the difference because right. you have no membership. Right. And you, you know, presumably have a better, you know, kind of if you're if your pool is is like just people who want a job because you have money to hire someone and you need somebody quick and you need somebody quick, you are just, you are much more likely to make a, a, a real bad decision than if your pool is sort of already been vetted by, they are already active in the organization. Right. So, so democracy makes this one less important or less, less problematic, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we still, it's still, uh, you know, good to pay attention to and think about that. But I, I do think that that does, um, I think that does provide a, a certain, uh, you know, buffer that, that private companies don't have. Right. And, um, and, I'm, and I can't imagine that the salaries at DSA are going to be, uh, you know, they're, attracting they're not be, <laughs> real yeah. gold diggers. Yeah, they're not. They're not. That's for sure. So the last thing that Fast Company talks about is refusing to reorganize internally. So in other words, you know, not not changing your structure just because as you grow, and right, right, and especially they talk about eliminating departments that are unnecessary, combining them in. So. You know, letting little fiefdoms grow up, I suppose, is part of it. But um, my sense is that this is also not going to be much of a problem, partly because it's very small um, and there aren't that many departments. But um, uh, I, I was less worried about that one. I thought right. that, I thought the uh, the most interesting one was the first one. Uh, yeah, no, and I think I think sort of being. Uh, and, you know, I think it's not just like that there's a difference between people who are uh, who are joining versus people who are at convention, but also like people who are joining because they've, uh, you know, been asked by a trusted coworker or, you know, someone in their community that they know right. and people who are joined because they really like the shit posting on Twitter. The DSA dank meme stash has recruited <laughs> many people, it turns out. Um, I, I barely know what this is, but apparently um, <laughs> it's very popular. So I, the, the, the number of dank meme stashes uh, in the country these days. It's exploded. It is, it is exploded. Right. We're we are seeing a dank meme stash bubble. Bubble, It's right. going to be the next major a, crash in the economy. That's right. That's right. Luckily, they, have, they play zero role in the economy <laughs> other than <laughs> sucking employees away from their work. <laughs> right, <laughs> just unproductive work time. Um, all right, well, great. So, so we recorded this podcast with our uh, panel of union organizers in mid July, and at that time, only a couple of the candidates had announced, and the Momentum slate had announced had announced its group of candidates. The Proxis slate said they were going to put out a statement and announce a slate of candidates. And you'll see in our conversation that we largely focus on some of the things in the Momentum platform. Obviously, now there are over 25 candidates, I believe. Uh, we're not going to be able to give voice to all of them. So I encourage you to go to the DSA convention site where all the bios of all the candidates are listed. If you're a delegate, you know, please review those <clears throat> so you can um, make you know, a fully informed decision. 
We are going to introduce you to two of the slates or the two slates that are running. And you're also going to meet Joe Schwartz, who is a current NPC member and a uh, current candidate. So let's start by talking with Joe. This is Joseph Schwartz. I'm a member of the National Political Committee of Democratic Socialists of America, also a vice chair of DSA, and I teach radical political thought and U.S. politics at Temple University in Philadelphia, where I'm active in the Philadelphia DSA local. How long have you been on the National Political Committee? I've actually been on the political committee since 1983, so I'm by far the longest standing member of the um, NPC. And you're running again uh, for the political committee. Yes. I mean, originally I thought I would probably just do the speaking and writing I do on behalf of the organization and sort of mentoring new chapters, et cetera. But because of the mass new influx of people, I want to play a role sort of integrating new folk and somewhat veteran people. And veterans can be people who've just been active for a year or two. Um, But also I think I have a, a good skill at bringing people together across generations and across political differences. So I want to stay on the MPC for one more term, probably just that, um, to help sort of um, build a new DSA, because 80% of our, 80, 70% of our members have joined in the last six months. I, I think we should understand the importance of fundraising both at the local and the national level, and whether we, you know, I'm sympathetic to the 80-20 dues split, to trying to raise our dues, but in a manner that doesn't discriminate against low-income people or people with heavy dependent care. I think what's really important to know is that we were about an 8,500-person organization on November 8th with an annual budget of about $550,000. We're now a 24,000-member organization moving to 25 that has a $1.2 million national budget, but that only sustains 8.5% full-time equivalent staff. And our staff works incredibly hard. I think you know, my final conclusion is we have to figure out how to raise money both nationally and locally so that our bigger locals can also have staff and offices and meeting space. And actually, in the 1980s, when we were 10,000, but pretty strong, about 10 of our locals had at least half-time staffers and offices. So I think that's something we really have to figure out is, you know, how to build the capacity of the organization, both nationally and locally, particularly in our small locals. And I would finally say I'm sort of famous for this because I do a lot of fundraising at conventions, but you can't fight capitalist trash without socialist cash. So from each according to our ability, we have to contribute the time we can contribute. And again, some people can only contribute $50 a year, $20 a year, but we have to contribute what we can financially because that's the way to build a really strong organization. Explain to me, first of all, are you the only candidate um, who is currently on the MPC that's running again? No, I believe Jared Abbott is running again. I think Simone Morgan and Teresa Alt are also running again. I'm not sure about David Green, but um, certainly Jared Abbott and myself and Simone Morgan and Teresa Alt are incumbents who are running again. I also believe, I don't think Hope, Ta- Hope Adair is running, but Brandon Peyton Carrillo is also running. So I think there are five incumbents who are running Okay, out of 16. Great. That's good to know. Um, So explain to, you know, considering that so many people are new, why don't you explain uh, what is the National Political Committee? Right. No, those are very important questions, particularly for new, but sometimes older members. Uh, The MPC is the highest political and administrative body in between conventions, but it's real 
job is to carry out the priorities set by the convention. It's also to work with staff and help staff get their administrative, financial, and political work done. Um, so, for example, the last convention really set working around, in and around, the Sanders campaign as its main priority. And that's really what the MPC did. And some of that work involved um, helping our locals make connections to the campaign, uh, helping our locals do, we did in the spring of um, 16 onwards, a political revolution 101 kind of study group um, public educational sessions where we actually invited all the people we met through the campaign to sort of learn what socialism was. That's really what the political revolution would be in its full um, fruition. So um, the MPC basically aids locals in development. We have a program in local development committee. It produces literature and political statements that strive to be consensual on issues of the day. It organizes, say, everything from organizing training to political education training. It engages in fundraising. It manages um, the budget. It settles grievances and disputes within the organization. But most importantly, I would say it is the chief, not just political, but administrative and financial body governing the organization in between conventions, but definitely also guided by input from locals because almost all MPC members help mentor and sort of are in direct contact with uh, a fair number of locals during the, what we now call chapters uh, throughout the two-year term of the MPC. So what's the time commitment for NPC members? Right. I, I probably should have first said it's composition. It's 16 members, at least eight of whom have to be self-identified women. It can be 16 women, uh, and at least four of whom have to be persons of color. But so again, it I just be, want to say this is yeah. important because later in this podcast, <clears throat> you're going to hear from me, and I'm going to say that it's uh, that the NPC is made of 14 people, but it is in fact 16 people. So right. There were actually were two open slots. We didn't fill two slots for persons of color the last time. This time, there are certainly sufficient candidates that. All seats are open to people of color, but we're going to have at least four people of color on the MPC, probably more. Um, so, but at 16, um, the quote, the one ceiling there is, is there can't be more than eight self-identified men on the MPC. But otherwise, the, there are minimums. They have to be at least eight women, at least four people of color. But in theory, there could be 16 women of color on the MPC. What's the time commitment? Oh, right. Right. Yeah, I would say, I mean, realistically, I'd say MPC members average 10 to 15 hours of work a week on the MPC. It's sometimes much greater, sometimes less. I'd say the most committed MPC members, probably it ends up being 15 to 20. It's very hard to be a leader of a local if you're on the MPC, particularly if you have child-rearing responsibilities, et cetera. It's a very serious time commitment. And the best MPC members are not necessarily defined by their political ideology, often they're defined by whether they can think strategically, how to situate ourselves in the Sanders campaign, how to situate ourselves in the single-payer movement, which is likely to be one of the political priorities coming out of the convention. Um, but they also have to be incredibly good at a variety of tasks, administrative, budget, writing, speaking for the organization, and also mentoring local activists, and preferably, if they can, somewhat travel, also visiting chapters, et cetera. So it's a serious time commitment, and the best MPC members aren't necessarily ideologues. They're people who really are workers. 
um, you know, we really need people who are willing to put in the time. And that's the most important consideration. You were asking how the vote takes place. It will be Saturday late afternoon between four and seven ballots will be given out uh, at four o'clock, I think due at 630 or something. You rank order the candidates one to 16. It's a weighted preferential ballot so that your first choice gets 16 points. Your 16th choice gets one point. You don't. You can vote for people regardless of gender or race, whatever. But the votes will then be counted. The first eight women running, you know, in terms of their vote totals, will be automatically elected. The first four people of color will be automatically elected, and then it's in order of finish. And again, you can have 16 women of color getting the most votes and winning. Um, but the open seats are determined simply by total outcome. You know, we'll be explaining that at the convention, but it is somewhat complicated. It's also people will sort of freak out because you're sort of a delegate from your chapter. Yeah. The ballots are actually signed and uh, public. Very few people, a few candidates or people who want to know why they won or lost. A few people will go through the ballots. But the idea that it's signed and that it's a public ballot often freaks people out. You know, right. People are going to know how I voted. All right. Well, since you are running um, as a candidate, I want to give you a chance to explain why people should vote for you. Right. Well, I think uh, I'm visible in terms of writing and speaking for the organization. I write regularly for In These Times, Jacobin Descent. I've been on MSNBC, the BBC recently representing the organization. But more importantly, I think I have a good strategic sense of how to sort of develop projects that work, whether it be our 1988 involvement in the Jackson campaign or some of our anti-intervention work in the 80s, or most recently, single-payer work and the Sanders campaign. I organized single-handedly as a volunteer, a 300-person socialist caucus at the Democratic National Committee. I think for people who are looking at politics, I'm very committed to racial justice work and to building our presence within and without the labor movement to build the power of working people. I'm on the executive committee of a 2,800-member faculty local that includes 1,200 adjuncts and really build solidarity across differences in status. And finally, I think I'm committed to the best of DSA's practices, an open, comradely, big tent atmosphere. And I want to help the large influx of talented organizers and new members take ownership of the organization while also building ties across generations and tendencies. And finally, I'd say, I think everyone would say one of the reasons why I've been elected, often in the 80s and 90s in pretty competitive elections, is that I both project our politics in a compelling way, but I also bring people together across differences to unite around common work. So I think I'm really effective at bringing people together across political differences, across generations, not diluting our politics, but building common projects that people from different ideological perspectives can unify around. I'm very committed to single-payer work, to labor work, and to electoral work, particularly as an independent socialist force using ballot lines in a tactical way. In other words, if it pays to run on the Democratic ballot, that's fine to run as an independent. But in, in finally, I just think that I'm good at bringing people together and moving the organization forward in a coherent manner. Thanks, Joe. Now we're going to start the original podcast, which we recorded in mid-July. So it might feel a little bit dated in places, but it's with Eric Robertson, who's a Teamster in Georgia, Sean Collins, who is, works for the service employees in Albany, New York, and Bianca Cunningham, who's an organizer for the communication workers in New York City. 
One thing I really want to make clear here, too, is that we don't talk a lot about the Proxus slate and platform, partly because it wasn't out yet. And so we try to interject some of that here, but I just want to let you know that's why there's not a lot of conversation about that platform. Okay, here we go. Welcome, everybody, to the Smash Up Derby. This is Sam Smucker. Uh, I am here with my host, Jonathan Kassam. Hi, and everyone. We are continuing on. Um, we have the most gracious guests here today because they're allowing us to record two episodes with them. Um, our first episode, which hopefully you just finished listening to, was about questions about the Democratic Socialists of America, how the organization has grown recently, um, and what the way forward will be uh, especially coming up on a national convention in a couple of weeks uh, here in the beginning of August uh, 2017. So um, we're recording this here in, in mid-July mid 2017, just a couple of weeks before the national convention. And I have to say things are getting exciting going into this convention because all of a sudden we've got different groups of people putting forward different visions for the organization. We're here today with uh, three uh, union organizers, uh, labor representatives who've been active with DSA over the last year, and we want to talk with them a little bit about the different proposals that are coming forward for the National Convention, different people who are running for, their, for the National Political Committee, which is the sort of highest body of the Democratic Socialists of America. There are people running for those positions. I think there's 14 positions. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, anybody. Uh, so people are running for those national positions and they're putting out statements on, you know, what their vision is uh, for the organization going forward. I know that, Eric, I know you're a signatory on the unity statement or the unity. Um, uh, it, that's the right way to say it, right? Is the unity statement? It, it was it was a uh, unity through diversity was is the full name. But the yeah, DSA unity is the web address and uh, Twitter handle and all that so uh, you can just use that if for short I suppose okay, okay so I'm gonna just ask you to so I don't have to explain it I'm gonna ask you to sort of give give us the gist of what the purpose of that statement was this is and this has been signed by some couple several dozen DSA members from around the country it should be hitting uh, the sig number of signatories somewhere in the it's over a hundred now and okay. it's probably at around 150 or so um so basically the the the, the impetus from that uh statement and uh, people signing it came from some of the uh members who were uh longer longer standing members of dsa uh joe schwartz being uh, one of them um but the you know and people being concerned that uh that there might be in a, uh, you know, the organization could go in a direction where we become, you know, more narrow. That we f uh, throw out, some, uh, to, you know, having a more coherent, like uh, uh, more uh, rigid sort of uh, level of agreement, ditching our, you know, the flexible electoral policy. But also, I think uh, turning away from becoming, uh, you know, a broad-based, multi-tendency, pluralistic type organization uh, that has gotten us where we are today and so that that's really the main uh thrust of it there's you know the, within the statement you can see where we're you know we support you know national training more uh, effort to, to train people more uh, education increasing capacity of the organization so we do you know we do support some 
measure to be taken to increase the resources for the uh, the national office. Um, we don't take hard positions on on that because it's uh, not everybody agrees on how the you know the dues should be, whether the split, the one percent, all that stuff. Um, and so, what what it essentially is is we want we're trying we. At least from my standpoint, I'll, I'll you know I'm sort of I'm saying what I think, but uh, you know I want the organization to c continue with the best aspects of what has gotten DSA here uh, to where it is, um, and uh, I, I that one of the and what reasons, are what are those things? Let's well I think a broad organization, a broad pluralistic organization that doesn't have like it's not a line organization, you know, it's not a uh, democratic centralist organization. And so not, what what does that mean, a line organization? For people a who line organization. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, a line organization uh, would be, you know, it's sort of used interchangeably with a democratic centralist organization. But if uh, the, the the way, uh, sort of the short uh, d description would be, if uh, the organization takes a position that people in the organization are expected to uh, support that position publicly, whether they agree with it or not. I see. Um, so it's really having a very narrow sort of, uh, I mean, it's basically having a platform and then that's what everybody sort of s sticks with. That's that's sort of the view of the organization. Correct. Um, and, 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 and DSA's... That, go ahead. Yeah, DSA's just not been that kind of an organization. Um, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I was willing to rejoin the organ to join the organization mm -hmm. because I've been through multiple left organizations that had uh, that were uh, democratic centralist and uh, people will ha you know haggle over whether that was true democratic centralist or not and you know the, the uh, all that I, I just don't want to see the organization move in that direction cause I, and I'm not trying to say anybody's proposing that we become a democratic centralist organization I think that there are things that, that there are people out there who, who would like us to be, and there are people out there, you know, uh, want to cohere the organization more. I, I'd like to, you know, we want to make sure that the that basically we come out of it with uh, the core principles that of, of DSA uh, remain intact. Right, and so DSA has 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 been distinct on the left in the sense that it has been a, a very, you know, for many years has been a very um, I don't know what you want to call it, but broad based in terms of its ideological perspective. Uh, there, there's multiple different versions of uh, people calling themselves socialists, eco-socialists, green socialists, feminist socialists. Um, that's part of this idea. Is that right? Eric? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I, uh, that that basically you're not like if if, if a, the organization and it's worked for people who are further to the left as well because people who when the when the national when the national political committee has made a decision that people disagreed with um, they were you know people were completely free to say what they want what they thought about it and 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 almost you know to, to a certain extent disregard it you know mm -hmm. i mean they didn't have to go out and promote that that position right you know people will critique why you know that we need a more you know uh, people on the left who are in these democratic centralist organizations you know often throw rocks at dsa saying well you don't get you can't make any you know uh you, you can't act in a disciplined manner and what i think the reality is is that people are disciplined because they want to be disciplined they don't they're not disciplined because uh you know you're in this sort of military you know almost militaristic type formation you adhere to that democratic centralism voluntarily, you know, mm -hmm. and so I think that people uh, in the organization will 
conduct themselves the same way. You know, like if, if you if you're disciplined and you're an activist, you're going to be really active and you're going to be and you're going to probably toe the line, even if you don't have misgivings about it. But if you're somebody who's, uh, you know, uh, more tentatively integrated into the organization, you're, you're going to have a more diverse set of views. And, and you've got a lot of people coming into this organization that have an extremely diverse set of views now. Fleshing that out, uh, you know, would, would not be a good thing for the organization. Trying to, trying to apply any of those one ideological, uh, you know, parameters wouldn't be a good thing for the organization. So there's another, uh, there's a group of people who released a uh, state, um, a platform which they call the momentum I guess it's the momentum platform um, and they announced their candidacies I believe it is seven or eight people um, who announced that they were running for the National Political Committee and they released the statement okay I'm gonna stop this right there because unless you want to listen to me go on for five minutes trying to explain a platform that I didn't write I think it's better that we go to Chris Masano from the uh, momentum slate and ask him to introduce himself and explain the platform. I'm Chris Maizano, and I'm a member of New York City DSA. Uh, I first joined DSA as a high school student in the late 1990s, which is far longer ago than I'd care to admit. Uh, and I've been a committed socialist ever since, so about 20 years now. Uh, I went to college at Rutgers in New Jersey. Uh, after I graduated, I went to work as a union organizer, and uh, today I work for a nurses' union in New York. Uh, and altogether, uh, at this point, I've got about a decade's worth of experience in the labor movement in a variety of different roles and settings. So the Momentum Group was the first slate to announce itself. Uh, why did you decide to run as a slate instead of just individuals? We're running as a slate for a few reasons. Uh, before DSA's huge growth in membership, there was really no need for individual MPC candidates uh, to run with others as part of something like a slate. Uh, the number of active members in DSA was pretty small. Basically, everyone knew each other, and we all knew what the candidates' political perspectives were and where they were coming from. Uh, I've been to a few national conventions before, and if my memory serves me correctly, none of them were bigger than something like 150 to 200 delegates. Uh, the explosion in DSA's membership has turned it into a different kind of organization. There's going to be many more delegates to this year's convention, many of them brand new to the organization, so delegates aren't going into this convention with the same level of personal uh, or direct familiarity that we've had with each other in the past. Uh, in this kind of situation, we think it makes sense for groups of candidates to run together uh, on a common platform so that we can provide members and delegates with a reasonably clear set of choices going into the convention. Uh, with the scale that we've reached, it's much more difficult to combine or aggregate individual points of view into something resembling a coherent whole. Uh, so we, we should also note that the practice of running for political leadership as part of a slate or a tendency is an extremely common thing uh, in left-wing parties and movements around the world. Uh, at this point, I think everyone's pretty familiar with momentum inside the British Labor Party, uh, and the name of our slate is a pretty obvious nod toward what they're doing. Uh, one of our candidates, Ellen Mahoney, uh, has been in Brazil for the past few months working with a party called the Party for Socialism and Freedom, and they have a wide array of tendencies operating under the same umbrella. So it's a pretty common thing, and it becomes increasingly necessary, we think, uh, once an organization has reached a certain scale. Uh, and with something like 25,000 members now, uh, DSA has reached that kind of scale. Okay, explain the Momentum platform so I don't have to. I'm running on the DSA Momentum slate with uh, eight other members from around the country. 
Uh, we wrote up a common platform uh, in order to put forth a clear set of perspectives on the current political moment uh, and what we think DSA's approach should be to many of the key issues and challenges facing all of us today. Uh, the platform has six parts that we think form a coherent whole. Uh, a rank-and-file labor orientation uh, to doing work in the labor movement, an electoral strategy that encourages the development of independent socialist political formations, uh, gives support and leverage to our social movement fights, uh, and gives us a platform to speak to a broad working-class audience. Um, third is renewing DSA's commitment to internationalism, uh, which has always been a core component of the socialist project, uh, and something that's uh, even more important uh, today than it's ever been uh, in the kind of globalized economy that we live in. Uh, fourth is a commitment to political education uh, and the development of DSA members' political perspectives so that we all have a strong sense of what we're fighting for uh, and why. Uh, a nationwide campaign for Medicare for all and a set of structural and organizational reforms in DSA that uh, we think would strengthen our chapter's organizing capacities and provide more uh, opportunities for internal political discussion and debate uh, in DSA. Uh, our view is that these proposals, if implemented, um, would go a long way towards consolidating the huge membership gains that we've made in the past year uh, and strengthen DSA's capacity to become the political home for uh, you know, the millions and millions of people who voted for Bernie Sanders uh, and want a real alternative to the dismal choices our political system offers to us. Thanks, Chris. Um, now I'm going to bring us back to our group of organizers, and we're going to enter the conversation with Bianca, uh, talking a little bit more about the international perspective and experience of the Momentum Group. Ella Mahoney has spent the last year in Brazil and done a lot of work with um, PISOL, and so I think that they also have an international perspective, solidarity perspective that they're bringing. That's right. That so let me just say PISOL is the uh, party for socialism and liberation in Brazil, right? Right. Uh, so it's a Brazilian socialist party. Okay. I think, I think that it will be interesting to have that conversation or to have some sort of strategy going forward now that I feel like uh, a large a uh, number of our members agree that we should leave the Socialist International and so it's like how are we going to um, have you know establish some what is, what is going to be our place in, in an international um, in this international yeah. fight and so I think that um, that would be interesting I'd also like to say that I really um, like their um, their proposal uh, talking about uh, Medicare for all you know, and making it as a national priority, although I do think that chapters should remain autonomous and be able to work on whatever they want to. I always say in my, in my uh, when I'm mentoring folks, is that before you go off and silo yourselves into your identity-based um, working groups, I'd like for you all to work on a campaign together so that you can um, familiarize yourself with how each other, you know, how the other one works and really, like, have an exercise in working as a unit um, before you know, before you, you branch off. And so I like that. Um, and, and I, and I also tend to like, um, you know, the, uh, elect their electoral strategy as well. Um, to be one. I think <laughs> and I'd also just add really, I'm sorry. I just really add really quick. Another thing that I really like about theirs is that they want to create these, um, platforms and like you said, these forums to like, 
um, allow DSA members to have like kind of these debates um, inwardly um, in the in the you know the forums, and I think that there's something in there about like bringing back some kind of committee and having like an organizing um, conference uh, between on the years between the um, the convention. I like all those ideas. I would just advocate for anything that gets our members offline, and <laughs> and I don't like the infighting on Facebook. So anything that discourages that and brings it to a uh, a more productive um, platform, I'm all for. Uh huh. Um, and and I'll just I want to comment too. There's one additional group out there that sort of made themselves known. This is a group called DSA Proxis. All right, I'm back. I'm interrupting this because once again, you'd have to listen to about uh, five minutes of me trying to explain what I took away from the Proxis online statement. And I thought better to have them uh, say it in their own words. So, so here's Ravi Ahmed, one of the candidates for NPC uh, from the Proxis slate to summarize their platform. Hello, Smash Up Derby listeners. My name is Ravi Ahmed and I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're the largest socialist organization in the U.S. with just over 24,000 members. I'm a member of the New York City chapter, which has 2,000 members. It's kind of wild what's happened in the last few months. I was invited to do a little spiel for you all because, as listeners of this podcast know, DSA is about to have its national convention in Chicago from August 3rd to 6th. And I'm running for national leadership of DSA as a member of the Praxis Slate. Praxis is a bit of an insider word, but one I'm kind of fond of. It refers to the iterative relationship between practice and theory. We're in a funny moment historically on the left. Capitalism has changed a lot, and picking out what remains true in our anti-capitalist analysis and what needs to change is something we need to grapple with. Theorize, see if it works out in the world, and take those lessons back to inform our theory. We believe that by building through organizing, we're also building socialist ideology that is grounded in today's realities and the experiences of poor and working people. A fundamental aspect of capitalism is alienation. The first task of any organizer, which is to say every member of DSA, is to connect with those around them. We need to build the largest possible organized community to take power and to transform the world around us. It's not just the analysis but also the methods of organizing that we pursue, which create the trust, the self-knowledge, and the solidarity to make durable change in our world. We believe the praxis builds solidarity, which is the emotional bond between people as they move in common struggle. These lives and struggles are deeply connected. That connection is not purely theoretical. It exists because we are tied together by capitalism. Yet, we yearn for something beyond it, socialism. Okay, but what does that mean? As regards the labor movement, the Praxis Slate believes we need to do what we can to support and strengthen the labor movement and struggles for worker power, especially since we can all see some form of right to work coming down the pike. This entails, for us, arguing for and supporting strategies that involve internal democracy, organizing skills education, member participation and engagement, as well as disciplined organizing within DSA. We want to fight for transformative reforms that change the political terrain and working class consciousness that supports the work that unions already do. We want to build with the intent to have the capacity to deploy direct action tactics and ultimately strike power. 
we're socialists, so we believe that the withdrawal of our labor is one of the most powerful things that we have in our arsenal against capitalism. Praxis believes that DSA should support and further left or progressive unions that we can assess to be clearly engaged in these strategies. For instance, the Fight for 15 movement, which has its faults, but has also had a powerful impact on class consciousness and worker militancy among working class communities of color. We want to build up our own members' capacity to organize in their own workplaces, because all socialists should be engaged in labor organizing to the best of their ability to organize within their own unions, to advocate for democratic strategies, and to participate constructively in union strategies setting. We want to build community among other workers in their industrial sector or neighborhood so as to help people self-organize for, for power. Finally, and in some ways most importantly, we want to build an analysis and relationship, set of relationships that support multiracial, multigender, and multinational solidarity building. I'm really lucky to be running with some amazing people on the Praxis slate. Like a lot of the folks who flooded into DSA in the last few months, the folks on the slate with me have been doing the work in a lot of different ways in our lives. Mike from Alaska is a vet who likes to say he went into the Army a Republican and came out a socialist. Leslie from Oklahoma City is sharp as a tack and organizing in one of the toughest states in the nation, where teachers panhandle for school supplies and protest is close to illegal. Allie is a Southerner, was born in Georgia, has lived in Florida, now lives in Tennessee. She's a teacher. She's thinking about maybe making the switch to social work. She came to DSA through the Bernie campaign. Celeste Early is also from Alaska. She's passionate about climate justice and socialist feminism. She's the chair of DSA Anchorage's Women's Caucus. Zach is from North Dakota. For a New Yorker to have friends from North Dakota is really pretty awesome. And finally, I've got my wonder twin, R.L. Stevens, Robert, who some of you may know from his writing in Jacobin. I hope you'll check us out at dsapraxis.org. Thanks, Ravi. Now let's go back to Eric, Bianca, and Sean. Eric, why don't you, since you're on the, since you are a signatory in the Unity platform, why don't you talk about the Momentum platform, and then we can sort of go back and forth that way. Well, sure, that's fine. Um, uh, first of all, I, uh, just on the on the that Unity statement, I mean, we want anybody to sign that. Uh, so we're we're you know we want people from Momentum to sign it. We want people from Praxis to sign it because we think that there are elements of that statement that. Uh, people on all these slates will agree to mm -hmm. um and so that's one of the reasons why it's not a slate platform it's a it's a it's it to put it in a, the equivalent of electoral politics is it's an issue campaign as opposed to an electoral campaign um because we we want people to when they're going through the process of making these proposals and debating them we want people to be thinking about that those principles in the background mm -hmm. you know um but uh you know the the momentum platform, and I'm speaking. This is just my personal opinion. Uh, you know, um, one of the things that is uh, problematic to me about the momentum platform uh, is is the labor section. Um, uh, the thing that got me the first was that there's a, a part in there where they talk about right uh, right to work, national right to work, uh, being an opportunity to oust. Uh, leadership that has been ineffective in the labor movement. 
and um, <laughs> you know, I, I I I don't know. I mean, I live in a right to work state. I've done nothing. I've, I've done all my union work in right to work states uh, that that, of it, that was of any consequence. And I don't know anybody in these states that just rent, you know, went right to work over the last few years. Many, uh, you know, whether you're talking about Michigan or uh, Wisconsin or Indiana or Missouri, none of those people are looking that like at that as an opportunity. Um, it, 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 the, the labor movement has been devastated. Uh, I talked to a, a, a teamster from Wisconsin. They lost 30% of their membership in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, labor went from 11% to seven percent in wisconsin you know to, to for that to be the only thing you really go into you know talk about it in, in terms of right to work uh and not really talking about how we're going to fight back and stop it from spreading um you know what kind of conditions can we generate and create that would sway the supreme court away from doing what they're planning on doing mm-hmm. you know um because uh, and I use the analogy all the time as it was a segregationist Supreme Court that that passed uh, that ruled on Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and so movements shape court rulings, you know, and so if we're talking about right to work, we should be talking about what can we do to stir the pot enough to back these people off from doing what they're they're thinking about doing um and and so that's to me that's 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 a that's an unfortunate thing that they put in there and after a lot of discussion asking people to to get it off their you know to reformulate because they there are many of the people on that slate that agreed that it was not a great formulation and i said well okay we'll change it then you know Mm -hmm. and 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 they haven't been willing to change it and i think that's unfortunate but i also think that you know they 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 come real hard uh, on this question of what they call the rank and file strategy I was a member of the same, you know, that, 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 that term essentially means people going into the labor movement and then organizing the, uh, uh, organize, basically forming oppositional caucuses within, uh, that union and then trying to oust whichever, you know, the leadership basically, mm-hmm. which is exactly um, what you did. It, it is exactly <laughs> what I did. It is. It, but the, well, the, I, I'll say this. The one difference is I wasn't a student. You know, uh-huh. I wasn't like I was somebody. I was a working class kid. I got a job at UPS, and I happened to be, and I was a socialist at the same time. So that's what you know. It's like if I'm going to get a job, I want it to be a union job, right. and because I, I want to be active in the union. Yeah, I am. I I did do what they advocate, and uh, and I'm not saying that that is uh, not something to be done. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that I don't think it fits into the activity. You know where the vast majority of labor uh, people, activists who have joined DSA over the last period, that there should be a more complex approach to uh, developing milit- a militant labor movement than simply ousting the leadership. Because sometimes leadership should be ousted. Sometimes you you know you, you go in there with the idea that they need to be ousted, and then you you know you spend all your time trying to oust them rather than possibly looking for ways that you can work with them mm-hmm. um and but we have a lot of union staff people a lot of uh who've joined uh, dsa uh, a lot of people who are doing organizing and these types of things and i think that there's just so you know when we're talking about labor and what we should be doing we should be talking about it in a more multifaceted way than simply people getting go, going and getting jobs and, and what we used to call industrializing uh mm-hmm. or, or and the, the pejorative of it was called 
they called it colonizing. Uh, actually, it wasn't it, that was actually wasn't a pejorative in the '70s because that the, the term and the and the approach came out of the '70s, not the '30s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it was basically there was a you know the class struggle. Everybody thought the revolution was right around the corner in the '70s. People coming out of the '60s radicalization, and so they all that they needed to go to the working class and you know get right. jobs and 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 wait for the revolution to happen. And 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 so the. I think that if you talk to people that are veterans of that uh, process, they will say that it was far too wooden. You know, they would say it was it didn't really it didn't always fit where when they were going in. And it also burned a lot of people out because if you're operating like that, it takes a lot of discipline and a very intense uh, uh, regimen right. uh, of work. And well, it, it's, it, there are many ways to be part of the labor movement. Right. Some people are just natural union organizers. They're great at that. And they should go and do that. Other people are they they would rather live their lives as members, right? That, that, that this is you know it's more it more suits who they are, you know, running for office and being a local leader. And maybe clearly they're not saying everybody has to go do this, but there's sort of a sense that this is the right approach and and what we really need to push people towards. Am, am I reading that right or wrong? Um, I don't know, Sean, if you want to jump in here or Bianca. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I, I would say to to the statement and, and what it said on on labor. I mean, agree and understand where where Eric's coming from. I, I think I, I I don't think that the the lack of the statement sort of saying that right to work bad, uh, you know, sort of means that they don't they don't think that. Um, and you know, but you know, it's at the same time the the statement does sort of struggle, you know, in you know with its. Uh, with its sort of quixotic phrasing that like this right. is an opportunity, well, I, I think it's going to be an unmitigated, you know, just sort of disaster uh, for for organized labor. You know, we are as as organized labor are not prepared to really deal with. At the same time, you know, I think it, you know prayer and 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 uh, you know crossing your fingers and toes isn't uh, isn't a replacement for organizing. But hopefully, there is a silver lining to that to that mushroom cloud, if you will. I, I think it. We, you know, we're sort of at a juncture where we are not going to the, the, the ruling is a is a is, is merely a matter of when. And, and we have to we have to grapple with how how we survive that. I think so. I think in terms of the statement, the way I see it, it's sort of a bigger a bigger issue of in, in some in some very left political circles that the worse things get, the better they get. Right. Oh, in yeah, other words, <laughs> and and no, and I think people in unions know that that's not true. And so maybe the only thing I would say is, yeah, it's sort of, sort of unfortunate that the language in this falls into that. What would be concerning to me is if that was really what they thought, right? Sort of that as things get worse, I, I don't actually think that's what they think. But I, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I think I think a lot of the concerns that you know that came out of it, it and you know Eric might have been one of the ones that raised them is this formulation that comes from an assortment of, of, of folks on the slate that uh, are not in those right to work states that are not grappling or in a predominantly mm-hmm. from those right to work states that are not grappling with its you know its uh, with its effects. I think yeah, there's one person uh, from a right to work slate on their on uh, or a right to work state on their slate. That I, while I do broadly agree with the momentum, you know, platform and, and support a lot, you know, broadly what I think to be their their intention and mm-hmm. and also what they do actually very very clearly say. I think one of the things that it still suffers from is is coming from big urban city uh, urban cores and, and not 
uh, you know, not being as representative of the of the the wave of mm-hmm. new chapters that we have, and it's and it and that absence, it, it you can see because it it's you know it, it comes up with formulations like it did in in the labor piece. That being you know that being said, I you know I, I think it's always important to assume you know good intentions there, and I and I think they understand that it, you know should, you know should they change it, perhaps at the end of the day that it's not my that's not my primary yeah. concern, but yeah yeah. I think that there there are sort of two visions of the organization going on here, um, and I think Sean, you're right that one maybe is is a vision that is like the momentum vision is driven by people who are in these really large chapters um, in really big cities, and that is we need to really deepen. We have all these people now. Let's really deepen education. Let's really build a very militant, strong organization that can be super effective. The unity perspective tends to say, no, let's build a very open, welcoming organization that can bring in hundreds of thousands of Bernie supporters into the DDSA. How, how does that sound? Does that, make, does that seem like a good way to contrast the two points of view? Bianca, I, we, haven't, we haven't heard from Bianca, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no please, Bianca, go ahead. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I vividly remember in the Momentum platform there being a line about how our goal, obviously, is to make this the political home for the millions of Bernie uh, Sanders voters, you know, in this country. Um, and so I think that, you know, in, in that in that aspect, I think it's, it's, the goals are similar. I think there's mm-hmm. similar goals. Um, I would just say on the rank and file strategy or whatever you were talking about, you know, that what you were talking about before is that uh, you know, and I would also like to assume good faith out of um, comrades there that wrote that. I don't think it's the best language, certainly, but I can say because a couple more than a couple of those people are actually in the labor branch um, that we did have extensive conversations on what the implications of right to work would be or what the consequences of right to work would be here in New York City. Um, we've tried and, and we have these kind of like doomsday conversations, you know, after the Trump um, administration uh, came to power, you know, and we've been just having and it's just been like all like just like so gloom and doom. Right. Um, and, and I and I think that what what we found ourselves pivoting towards is trying to find success stories, although they may be very few. I, I'm, it's escaping me. One of them in Texas, there's a union in Texas that uh, we had a presentation about, and I, I, I apologize, it, it's just escaping me right now. But like, I think that what they've been trying to do is like tr- try to find these, like, you know, uh, in spite of um, stories, like in spite of right to work, you know, the membership has, you know, stayed steady, or we've, we've been able to engage folks. And I think that that was the spirit of what they were writing, mm-hmm. is saying that, yeah, this is gloom and doom. And I can say, also speak to um, just knowing some of their politics, that they also do um, disagree with Eric and, and don't feel like this is, um, that a movement will shape uh, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court decision. They feel like it's pretty much done, like Sean said, it's a matter of when. And so um, we're trying to, like, move past and see, like, uh, what could the opportunities be in the future, and what should our strategy be going? Uh, what sh- should our strategy be? Strategy be, excuse me, going forward. And so, um, I would just say that about that part, um, and also recognizing that a lot of our, and I'm not sure we have like 2,000 members, a little over 2,000 members um, here in New York City, and I would say a, a large majority of our. Um, Membership right now, for better or worse, are downwardly mobile uh, millennials. And so a lot of people who are unemployed, a lot of people who are looking for work. And I have to say that, um, you know, 
without saying too much, I think that there has been a relationship between downwardly mobile millennials who are looking for work and, uh, and, and, and people in unions who have programs finding opportunities for them to go to work um, because they need a job, right? Mm-hmm. Not that we're making them, but saying, like, if you want to do this because you need a job, this is not the best job in the world and it's not the worst job in the world, but here, here, here are some of the benefits to taking this job, not only for yourself, but for the movement. And I, I don't see any harm um, in that. As a matter of fact, it's been very successful um, here in, you know, here where we are. So yeah. that's what I'll say. Right, and I, which I, makes sense, right? I mean, like, the CIA, a lot of the CIO, to be honest, was was organized by downwardly mobile young people in their 30s. Right, I think, um, you know, my, my feeling is that there's nothing in the Momentum platform that goes against the historic nature of DSA. I don't think that they're trying to uh, make it into something different than what it is, but I think they do have a particular kind of vision for the organization, um, which I think is fair to have um, in the same way that the, you know, folks, the unity folks who some of whom have been in the DSA for a very long time have, you know, have a little bit of a different um, vision. And I think one way that it comes out is in the electoral strategy, whereas the, and this is where I feel like the Bernie Sanders part is really missing from the, from the momentum platform, um, because their analysis is, you know, the Democratic Party is not the place where we're really going to make much progress. And that's kind of ironic, given that Bernie Sanders just ran in the Democratic Party and did extraordinarily well. And it really is the whole reason for the revitalization of the DSA. It, that part seems a little bit contradictory to me. I, I, and I think that this is where, you know, their their uh, concern or their interest in having a more disciplined organization really comes through, right? That they want an organ, you know, they want an electoral organization that's not just sort of open-ended where we're getting members elected and hopefully they're going to stick with us. Um, but they want to have some kind of organization that elects people and they can hold on to those people somehow, make sure that they're going to continue to vote the way we want them to vote. Um, yeah. I think that's, I mean, I think that's an interesting point, but, I, you know, I think at this point now it's July, nearly August, right? It's a year and over a year now removed from the primary and, you know, almost going on a year now removed from the, from the general election. And I think it's, I think it's important to, to talk about, uh, you know, DSA's membership growth in, 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 the, in the form of spikes, right? In terms of like the spike that it experienced during the Bernie campaign. And then also, and, and it's important to separate that and juxtapose it against the spike that it experienced with the election of Trump. Would DSA have continued to have grown or would have grown in the same fashion if yes, Bernie lost, but Hillary won and Trump and Trump didn't win or, or you know, or not? And so I think, I think it's important to consider the, the right. Bernie thing, you know, it, it was a smart, strategic, tactical choice to have made to, to, to put energy into sort of into that campaign and to make it as successful as possible. Uh, it was it wasn't the, the, the chess pieces were arranged differently. You know, I think we need to what was, you know, move away from the, the Bernie example. And, and I think it's important to, to see that as a as a one off moment in American politics that for now is 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 not on, I, I don't think is really on the horizon for us in the, in the foreseeable future. And I think DSA needs to think about like, all right, well, how do we, well, how do we build the, to, for lack of a better term, uh, the momentum uh, to, mm-hmm. to, get, to get to a moment similar to that again. And it will, the, the, the parameters of that will, ne- will never be in that same moment again, but how can we get to something 
uh, different. And I think yeah. and I think all these different all these different statements, all these different platforms, the unity statement. I think I think they they have a lot more in common than they see. I I, I feel like a lot of concern has been you know has been raised about the different tendencies and and f folks sort of feeling like people are assessing what happened yesterday wrong and trying to to offer up the you know a vision. And I think it's important. It's just like we this is a this is just an incredibly odd and bizarre moment that we are in in American politics and part, we're going to get part of it wrong. Importantly, it's like it's important to, for our organization is like how much of it can we get right, but also realizing it's like, again, this is just our plan for the next two years and we're going to have an opportunity to revisit this very right. soon. I um, mean, and evaluate, what we've done, what, and evaluate what we've done in those two years as well. Right, right. I think, though, that I, I'm trying to draw out sort of the contrast here because I know what's going to happen. Is, you know, people are going to go to the convention and and there's going to be these discussions. And I guess I'm hoping that uh, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to pull out what I see as the differences in the points of view um, just as a way to, I don't know, illuminate a little bit of of, of the different uh, the different point of view in inside DSA. Um, and not, I'm not trying to put one down or, or the other, although, I mean, I, I think, you know, I do have some opinions about, um, about some of it. One of the things that um, I think that the vision, and Sean, I think that you've sort of touched on this, the vision of the momentum versus the unity group. The momentum slate talks about PSOL, this, org this uh, new party in um, Brazil, and sort of elevates it as, you know, a, a good... A, kind of international, we should have connections with this kind of party and Podemos in, in um, Spain um, is another example they use. Um, and what they don't talk about is they don't talk about the Workers' Party in Brazil, right? So this is the, the big, you know, left party in Brazil. Um, they don't talk about well, the um, PS, well because the PSOL was a split from the Workers Party right so the, P, the P, but the PSOL has about like it has one or two delegates in the in the national I don't know what they call it the House of Delegates or something um, so it's a very small party I mean it's big in the sense that there's about a hundred thousand members and that kind of thing but it's small in terms of its political impact whereas the real in my opinion, you know, the real um, amazing thing that's happened in Brazil over the last 30 years was the rise of Lula and the, the success of the Workers' Party and the ability of that party to win incredible gains in basic, uh, you know, nutrition and rural electrification and all these sort of things. So and and I only say this because I think that this illuminates sort of the different perspectives of what they think the DSA, what the different groups think about when they think about the DSA, right? So I think that there's some people who think of the DSA as participating in a sort of broad-based social democratic, democratic party. And I think that the Momentum Platform has a little bit of a different vision of it, which is you know, that this is going to be maybe a smaller formation, but uh, more effective on the international stuff actually because uh bianca referenced earlier the second international and could someone also just like touch on yeah. what that is yeah also i'm curious yeah. because because this DSA plays into that as well that this plays yeah. into that as well well i yeah so the um first i'll say that the, the resolution uh to motivate leaving the second international has been written by a leader of both the momentum slate and the unity uh yeah. statement um, so you, you you do have some, uh, and you know Joe Schwartz necess doesn't necessarily. It's Chris Masano and, and Joseph Schwartz, and and Joe uh, 
you know, while he's part of that older uh, group of, of comrades, uh, I think it, it's it, it's uh, uh, it, it says something that he's that he's co-sponsoring that and he's you know, motivating it that he agrees with the notion that we should leave it. I think the um, it, it, interestingly on the international stuff, I, I'm not as the the PSOL issue. I'm not as concerned about because I think that the there's an argument to be made that the Workers Party. Uh, started allowing in uh, some elements into the party that caused them to have all kinds of corruption scandals and things like that, and that was one of the reasons why the PSOL ended up leaving. Other, also, the implementation of neoliberal policies uh, uh, for the Olympics and things, and uh, some of the stuff that happened around the Olympics um, was done under the auspices of the Workers' Party. So I, I'm not as concerned about that as a, but I think it's interesting that they point out that Podemos is a is as a model. Uh, and also, they point out, and they they and I remember correctly, they actually refer to momentum in the UK as a party as well, uh, which it's not. It's a caucus within the Labour Party. By everybody else's definition, was a is a neoliberal party, and it has been for quite some time. Um, so I'm not sure what the you know. It's I, I find a little it's a it's a little bit of a contradiction there that you talk about a a caucus. You're naming yourself after a caucus that operates within a neoliberal party pushing it to the left. And I understand the distinctions between the Labor Party and the Democratic Party. They're not the same thing. But the principle of being in that uh, being in a mass party and pushing it in a direction you want it to go versus create, trying to create your own independent organization. I, I think that's the, the basic distinction I'm trying to I'm trying right. to like draw out here. Right. Is that there's but a think, sort of different Podemos, vision. But Podemos is even more uh, amorphous. Yeah, it's, it's less they ideological. Are, they they are not a, uh, they don't come from any of the political traditions of you know whether it be Trotskyism or the Marxist-Leninists or what you know some people call Stalinists but Marxist-Leninists and or even Social Democratic but they have elements of all of that in the organization and they've made a, now an alliance with uh, the United Left which is the historic uh, pro-democracy split. <laughs> from the official Communist Party. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, to, to me, Podemos very much speaks to what I want to see. I want to see a movement that sort of goes beyond this sort of stale definition of it relies on too much on the historical socialist movement that has, you know, with Marx, Engels, Lenin and all that mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and traditions that are connected to that and, and, and sort of refounds a, 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 an authentically American uh, socialism it's more similar to the the old socialist party uh, back in the you know in the early 1900s well, um, and but prior to the split uh, in 1919 and I um, think one thing about DSA is that DSA is a truly unique formation in that sense yeah. right I mean it is not a party it although there are people who run for can you know for office sort of out of DSA um, it is an activist organization that also finds itself doing electoral politics. It's it's an it's just an interesting formation in that sense, right? And and very unique. Uh, just to address the socialist international issue, so there's there's a general push to leave the socialist international. Okay, I'm breaking into this conversation again. I'm going to summarize really quick our 25 minute conversation about the socialist international, and that basically is that there seems to be a consensus in DSA we should leave the Socialist International because that organization, which at one time was the international body where socialist parties uh, 
met and, and discussed strategy uh, no longer really functions that way. It includes a lot of parties that are not very democratic and not very socialist. And, and most of the social democratic parties of Europe, like the French Socialist Party, have left that organization. So there's going to be a resolution at the convention to withdraw from that organization. We discuss some other options here. Um, you know, momentum is really the only, uh, thus far, the only people really outlining an inter a policy of, of uh, internet well, around international alignment. Um, the uh, my for, for myself very much support you know leaving the Socialist International and and trying to begin dialoguing with these other these new parties. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know people are down on Syriza in Greece, but I think uh, there's every reason to think that we, we, we would want to be talking to them, even if we didn't agree that they, you know, agreed to the IMF's terms or, or, the, or the austerity measures and things like that, um, that there's still a basis for wanting to talk to that party, you know, but all there's, you know, the, the, there's a, an alliance of European left parties that is made up of basically parties that are sort of post- old left you know mm -hmm. so they're com uh, you have uh, many of them are uh, mergers of either whole or in part of social democratic and marxist leninist parties that have sort of uh come together uh, uh you know to form a new type of politics and and i i think that's a very exciting we haven't done that here in the u.s there was this uh, committees of correspondence that left the communist party usa back way back when, but the, um, but you haven't had that same sort of realignment in the United States that you've had in other industrialized countries. Well, and these parties in the but United States it, are minuscule too. I mean, that's the other right. difference. True, true. But well, this, the, you know, for instance, the Communist Party USA still has around 5,000 members, mm -hmm. you know, um, so it, I'm just saying that there are people out there that have some weight that we could look at, but I'm more tempting about the international stuff. We should be talking to those other organizations, and I would like to have seen something more definitive come out around that, but I, I didn't have the energy to do it or the time to do it. And um, so, you know, I, I don't disagree with what Momentum is saying. And I, I also want to say something, too. I think what Bianca said something very important, and I want to make clear, uh, I do take view everything in those platforms with good faith i'm i'm gonna you know i think pointing out things that i have issues with is important but i don't think that they're like pro right to work or anything like that i don't think that they're uh, soft on it either i think that it was a simply a bad formulation uh and i i think uh sean said because some of these folks don't have intimate uh they don't they don't they haven't seen the impact of right to work as it comes in um and because it, it is it is one of the criticisms that I've heard and I actually share is that uh, the momentum slate is overwhelming majority bookended uh, from bookended chapters, you know, California and New York um, and Philadelphia and, and Jersey. And, and I think that that's, you know, uh, it could stand to have some participation by people that are in right to work states. The U.S. South uh, uh, would be important to have that perspective out there. And so I do think that they, they simply made a mistake. I'm not saying that they're, you know, it, 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 they crossed the Rubicon because they, they made a bad formulation. I think that they, and, and they do have some good stuff. I, I will not cry and I will not be upset if the, if momentum were to win um, their seats on the, um, uh, on the political committee. I, but I, I, I do, I'm a little bit apprehensive about the fact that they're now trying to contest for a majority of the seats. Right. So, so if the whole slate were to win, they would essentially control the, national um, political uh, committee. You know, my emphasis is, 
in looking at the different candidates is always on their experience and what they've done before. Because I think the biggest predictor of how good they're going to be on the MPC is how what have they accomplished previously is uh, I want to read people's bios and I want to know what they've done previously. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Really quick, really quick. Yeah, please. Um, I just want to also make a point that, you know, one of the things I see, I, I guess I'm part of what you would call the millennial generation, although, um, you know, it's questionable because my activities don't match. But, um, you know, one of the things I see is that, you know, we have this like presence online, specifically, you know, on social media where, you know, you have certain voices that tend to dominate because mm-hmm. I call it punditry, you know, uh, <laughs> For better or worse, um, and I and I and I find that you know most of the time the folks who are doing and I can speak to my own chapter the folks who are doing the real organizing the nitty gritty day to day don't really have time to do like write essays on um, online uh, every day questioning this and questioning that and I think it's unfortunate that folks you know these people like you know I don't think there's anything wrong with having like healthy discussion and debate but I do say I do think that sometimes folks seem to be more active than what they nor actually are because they have such a presence online. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I just like to say that for whatever that's worth that I, I hope we don't get caught up into the celebrity or the, um, you know, the, the Facebook punditry um, of this whole thing and really focus on, like you said, what people have actually done and what material, like what has materialized in their chapter as a result of their own efforts. So. Yeah, I'm guilty of uh, in our DSA labor Facebook group of just encouraging all sort of labor activists to run for the MPC only because I just think labor activists are such special and interesting people, which is why we had all of you on here today with us. So uh, maybe we'll wrap it up and um, just thank everybody for once again participating in two podcasts today. Uh, And again, if anybody out there has not join DSA, go and do it right now, dsausa.org. And uh, let's see if we can hit, I think we've hit set a a informal goal of hitting 25,000 before the convention. Oh yeah. So we'll see if we can uh, accomplish that. Make Uh, it happen. Our vast podcast listenership will put us up. That's right. (laughs) There's a a couple of other podcasts out there and I won't name any names, but if they got out there and said, everybody join DSA, uh, we could get that 25,000 probably. Right. Maybe our podcast will bring in the last dozen. So (laughs) just keep our fingers crossed. All right. Well, again, thank you all for um, participating and sticking with us for so long. And um, it was really a pleasure talking with all of you. Uh, This is great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. And we'll see you all in Chicago in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. See you there. All right. right. Bye-bye, everybody.